National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordum. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. Nikki tries to get it done in New Hampshire. John Fetterman lets loose and Donald Trump goes all caps on the question of presidential immunity. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry and I'm joined as always, or at least some of the time, by the dominator, Dominic Pino, the sage of authenticity, was Jim Garrity and the notorious MBD. Michael Brenner Doherty, you are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are the Bound by Oath podcast, Moink and C-SPAN. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, the campaign has progressed since we talked last on Tuesday in the immediate aftermath of Iowa. Nikki Haley headed that night to New Hampshire, gave a very New Hampshire-centric uh, third-place uh, finish speech. I was about to call it a victory speech <laughs> in Iowa. And she said she's not going to debate Ron DeSantis. I like debates. I think, you know, it's in the abstract, it's a shame, but I can see why she doesn't want to stand there five feet away from Ron DeSantis, uh, calling each other a liar, you know, for an hour and a half or whatever it is that benefits no one. Plus, DeSantis is at a five percent in uh, New Hampshire, and his his he's not skipping New Hampshire, but he went first to South Carolina, and their strategy, you know, which it seems highly delusional, is you know they'll finish. A, a very distant third in New Hampshire in the single digits, but Nikki won't win it either. And this will be a, a huge blow to Nikki. And then they go into South Carolina and she'll lose her home state. Now, th- those two things about Nikki not winning New Hampshire and losing South Carolina are reasonable enough. And then she has to drop out after losing South Carolina. And then boom, it's a two-man race between Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. So, yeah, could Nikki have to drop out after South Carolina? Sure. Is it going to help Ron DeSantis re- revive his prospects? No. And Trump, you know, there, there's different polling in New Hampshire. We uh, we may have discussed this on Tuesday or mentioned it on Tuesday, I forget, but there was a there's an ARG poll that had it 40-40 Trump Haley in New Hampshire, but a lot of the other polling shows a double-digit lead for Donald Trump. So what, Jim Garrity, do you make of it? You know, Throughout this entire presidential cycle, you can see it in Ron DeSantis. You can see it in Nikki Haley. I guess you could say some of the other candidates who've dropped out had this. <laughs> you ask them, you know, what's your what's your plan for victory? What's your theory of the race? How, you know, they always have some element of, and then everybody turns away from Trump and decides to support us. 
And that that impetus, that uh, that thing that's going to make that happen, has not happened. Uh, Ron DeSantis, I think you can safely say, you know, Iowa was a disappointment. Yeah, it was a second place finish, but it was a thirty points behind. Um, and everything you laid out there, at no point do you get to anything where people say, and then the, the closest you get, and on, you know, the Nikki Haley folks had a very similar approach to the DeSantis folks, like, oh well. DeSantis is going to be left for dead after Iowa, and then no one will have any cho- other choice other than to support our candidate mm-hmm. if they don't want Trump. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, is that one that's you know, not everybody who votes for the other guy is going to jump into your pile. There are a bunch of DeSantis supporters who would probably prefer Trump to Haley, and believe it or not, there are probably some Haley supporters out there who would prefer Trump to uh, DeSantis. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it's kind of hard to see where either one of these folks gathered. And you know, I, I floated that idea of a unity ticket probably like two months ago. Everybody said they hated that. Uh, they've convinced themselves that the other candidate is just the worst possible. And I think, as you saw in that last debate, I think DeSantis and Haley genuinely don't like each other right now. I think they've grown yeah. to feel that way. Um, I, 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 I agree with you. Someone, Jim, raised the idea with me, and I have no idea this is true. And this this Politico also hadn't, you know, no one at the DeSantis camp had told him this, but he just has a feeling, you know, sometimes when someone takes something away from you or you think they've taken away from you, you hate them more than you're, you're what really should be your enemy, you know, and it's just all yeah, the DeSantis yeah. emails, all the, the tweets, as far as I can tell, they're all anti-Haley. And, and you also put your finger on a really important thing. Maybe it didn't have to be this way. And it goes to the inadequacies of both these candidates, but they become kind of mutually exclusive, small pluralities, right? The, the DeSantis vote, you know, some substantial portion of it, if he disappears, will go to Trump. And the, the DeSantis people, what they've always said is, is Haley's path is not there because, you know, we disappear, our vote goes to Trump and it's over, but we'll inherit her vote. But I don't think, you know, it's not necessarily some of them might go to Trump, but also these moderate independents, they just, they won't show up. They won't vote yeah. if, it's, if uh, Haley's not there and the, the other choice is DeSantis. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that's kind of striking is that I don't see any effort from the DeSantis camp to try to win over Haley voters. And I don't see any effort from the Haley camp to try to win over DeSantis voters. Uh, those attitudes are hardening. So and just on the debates, I, I concur pretty much with your take that like, ideally more debates is better. Um, but I think that last one really was not helpful for either candidate. And I think it was painful to listen to for an entire two hours. Thank you, CNN. Um, and I don't, so if, you, if you're just going to get a rerun of that on a New Hampshire stage, then it's entirely understandable. Nikki Haley would say, "I don't want to. I don't want to debate that guy anymore because he's behind me in mm-hmm. New Hampshire." I, but let's point out, like this might be not only is that likely the last debate of the Republican primary. You know, you got senators like Chris Coons and Dick Durbin saying that Biden should not elevate Trump, should not digni- yeah. give Trump the dignity. Of it. So we may have the last debate of the year. Yeah. Uh, I think. I also keep in mind Republicans have said they're not participating in anything sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. And it's very hard to see Democrats signing on for a debate that's not sponsored by the Commission on Presidential Debates. So we may have seen the last debate for a while. Yeah. And it's really Trump, you know, he, he ruined the debates basically by not showing up. You know, they, yeah, they, you know. they seemed worthless. And then you get this this two-on-two dynamic with Haley and DeSantis that wouldn't be there if Tr- Trump were there. But it's been a brilliant, just an absolutely brilliant tactic. He may regret it in, in the fall when it's, when it's an excuse for Biden not to to show up and debate him. So MBD, I watched Nikki Haley's CNN town hall last night. And, you know, she's she's nice seeming. She has a great smile. When all these questioners stood up, she just beamed at them, you know, in a very uh, winsome 
way. She's smooth, you know, in part because she never says anything she hasn't said said many times before, which is true of, of most political candidates. But she's highly uh, rehearsed, and then sounds, you know, she sounds reasonable uh, on everything. Maybe not for you, but I think for the average Republican, she sounds reasonable. But there's nothing, there's nothing exciting there. There's nothing new there. Um, there's nothing thrilling, and you don't necessarily need that to win a, a presidential nomination. Um, Joe Biden didn't need it in 2020, obviously. But the problem is Republican voters do not view Donald Trump as Bernie Sanders. You know, like an ideological outlier is a huge risk in a, a general election. So they'll go to this safe safe choice that's been around forever. And with the exception of Biden, you know, very often to, need a, to win a nomination, you need to create excitement, a sense of something new, and maybe even a movement, you know, Bill Clinton did this, Barack Obama did it, obviously Donald Trump did it in 2016. I just don't think there's much feeling there um, around the, the Haley campaign. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, like I've said for a long time now, since last summer when New York Times and Siena was started its polling, it seemed very clear that Haley was the candidate of, of a very coherent faction of the Republican Party, a very important one. Um, electorally, um, you know, suburban based, more activist on foreign policy, very committed on the Ukraine issue. Um, and she's kind of there, like if, if you're voting for your heart or for the party you want to see, those voters are going to vote for Haley. So there's a a kind of movement there, but it's just a a minority movement, you know, in, in a way like, you know, it's a bigger version of like the Ron Paul thing, you know, it's, it's a, a minority faction movement with Trump. You know, I, I think, um, you know, Trump is loved by, when you look at those same polls, uh, you'll see, you know, uh, very conservative voters love Trump and conservative voters love Trump. And that might be like a little bit mysterious. I think some of our listeners who know that we have so many problems with Trump, but I think a lot of conservative voters view themselves as needing help, like, and Trump's celebrity, his 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 enormous, like, media dominating personality. That it's like they want to ally with that those strengths, and those haven't really gone away. Um, you know, even though the media is treating Trump very differently this time around. Um, than they did in 2015 and 2016. Um, I think they still see those as the strengths and, you know, he's, that's what he's going to ride to win this nomination this time. So Dominic, there's been a lot of uh, heat around something Nikki Haley said the last couple days. She was asked, I don't know, maybe it was about Trump, you know, making fun of her, uh, her, her name and Trump's inimitable style or something like that. But she said, you know, this is not a racist country and has never been a racist country. I think she said maybe at a Fox town hall. And then she was asked about this again last night. But this this has been a big scandal for a certain segment of people. I was actually on CNN earlier this morning with an African-American woman who literally said she felt erased by, <laughs> by this statement. And clearly what she meant, if you kind of read it in context or listen to it in context, is it, that America was never fundamentally a racist country. Obviously, it was... A, a racist country in the way, unfortunately, you know, most countries were, were racist in, in the 18th century, but the founders, um, you know, the great uh, achievement of the founders, they, they pointed to something better than that. They had the assumption that slavery would 
go away. It was wrong. It took a terrible civil war to do it, but they didn't write the word deliberately in, uh, in, in the, the Constitution because they thought it would ultimately be, be an embarrassment to, to put it in there. In there. But anyway, th- these kind of uh, statements are just catnip to the uh, political commentariat and, and the left that just uh, uh, lo- lo- loves, loves talking about this and loves slamming Republicans for supposedly not being um, truthful enough on this question. It is funny because if if uh, if the Democratic Party had a field of primary candidates of the varying races and ethnicities that the Republicans did this year, we would never hear the end of how it looks like America, how it's you know how this is you know a great great step forward in in racial progress. But you know the Republicans put forward a very diverse slate of of candidates this year, um, and. Uh, of course, most of them didn't do very well. Most of them uh, have, have already dropped out. Um, but I do think it shows the media double standard that, uh, you know, if if they, they, it would have been just as easy to frame this this primary campaign as, uh, you know, a, a, a step towards uh, or a step away from the racist past of the United States. The fact that you have, you know, a black senator from South Carolina was a Republican running this year. Um, and, uh, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, so I, I definitely think it shows, it shows a double standard. Nikki Haley has always been subject to, uh, you know, attacks about her name, which are just silly. And, uh, you know, I do sort of feel bad for her to a certain extent that she keeps having to deal with these kind of things, but, you know, Nikki is her middle name. She goes by her middle name. It's a totally normal thing to do. Right. Uh, people do it all the and time. And then she got married. And then she got married. And so <laughs> naturally, she took her husband's name, like basically everyone does. So it's it's completely uh, it it is it is complete nonsense, and uh, it's it's terrible that she has to keep has to keep putting up with this, and has to keep being put in situations where she has to has to uh, defend this kind of stuff. I, I think it is it is it is unfortunate for her. But um, and Trump, yeah. just, uh, he just lo- loves this tactic. You know, Ted Cruz was Raphael mm-hmm. in, in 2016 when he was a threat, and of course he, you know, he, he kind of messes up, messes up probably deliberately. Her her uh, her, her first name like Nimrata is what what he's what he's calling her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just ah. Uh, uh, so Jim Garrity, let's put it all on the line once again, fearlessly. And do New Hampshire predictions with uh, percentages attached. What's your guess and what's going to happen Tuesday? I think uh, Nikki Haley will have a respectable second place finish, but ultimately one that does not give anyone a sense that the race has been reset or that's competitive. And she'll have a lot of questions of, look, if you can't win in a state with you know so many independents and Democratic crossover votes, where are you going to actually going to win a state? So I'll go Trump 49%. Haley, 39%, and DeSantis, you know, whatever's left, probably around 9% or so. And then, do, so do you think in that circumstance, she goes all the way through South Carolina? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, once you started running, nobody wants to admit, yeah, this, this mm-hmm. is, you know, I did lousy. So she'll talk herself into believing, and her campaign and her supporters will talk about it. But, um, I mean, my, I would not expect any dramatic change, and I think Trump would win South Carolina by a comparatively comfortable margin as well. MBD. So was that 4938? 4938. 4939. 49399. 9. Nine. Nine, nine, nine. Surge. A DeSantis surge. Wow. I'm 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 with I'm very close to Jim. Um 
I think, yeah, Trump will be at 50. Um, just break that mark. Uh, Haley will be at 34. And I actually think DeSantis will be in double digits. I think he'll be at like 12. I think Ramaswamy and Christie getting out, you know, kind of freeze some people. And there was some, seemed like there was some overlap between Ramaswamy and DeSantis people in Iowa, at least among younger voters. So I see, see Ron's number going up just a little bit, but it's sort of like um, the dead cat bounce. Yeah. Dominic. Uh, let's say 51 for Trump. Uh 41 for Haley and like five for DeSantis and then the remainder for the various random write-ins and others and things. Mm -hmm. I got it closer than you guys. I have 48 Trump, 44 Haley, six DeSantis. So um, even though this, this Boston globe poll, which is a a tracking poll showed actually Trump gaining Yesterday and and Haley falling back a little bit. Every every poll you know in, in aggregate has has shown her gaining in New Hampshire. So maybe maybe this is the first indication she's stalling out. But I, I still kind of believe in the momentum and and independents aren't going to be voting in the Democratic primary where not much is going on. So she's going to benefit from that. So I think she gets close. I think she gets close, but it's still a second place and. Um, and and DeSantis is I, I think six is is you know it wouldn't shock me if MBD's right. But um, six is higher than he's polled in, in, in some of these recent surveys. So with that, we'll know more on Tuesday night. Let's go to our first sponsor this episode, the Bound by Oath podcast from our great friends at the Institute for Justice. The world would be a better, freer, and happier place if constitutional protections for private property were taken just a tad more seriously. That's according to our friends over at the Institute for Justice who have just begun releasing a new season of their legal history podcast, Bound by Oath. Bound by Oath tells the story of how the Supreme Court has cleared the way for government officials to abuse property rights, to trespass on private land without a warrant, to restrict peaceful and productive uses of property, to seize and keep property without sufficient justification, and much more. Featuring interviews not only with scholars and litigators, but also with the real-life people behind some of the Supreme Court's most momentous property rights decisions, the new season explores the history behind today's civil rights battles. So plug Bound by Oath into wherever you get your podcast and start with episode one. That's Bound by Oath. Please check it out. So MBD, we had an ongoing story we've never really talked about at any length, and this seemed a, a good time to do it. John Fetterman's amazing transformation since recovering from depression, checking himself out of Walter Reed. One theory is that the Fed, this is kind of what Fetterman always was, and now that he's feeling better, you know, he's he's uh, communicating a, a little better also since his his stroke. We're seeing the real Fetterman. Another theory is, is he, hey, he realizes there is a, a presidential election coming in Pennsylvania that's going to really be close and that he should um, uh, uh, repair his, his image. He's still under 50% in, in polling, so to, to best enable himself to help President Biden win Pennsylvania. But whatever's going on, he, as our friend John Podorz has put it, is doing a reverse Bullworth. I never saw Bullworth. It looks like a perfectly terrible movie, but it's this establishment Democrat President, uh, sorry, Senator in California who has all, all sorts of personal uh, problems and a- ends up, uh, you know, see- seeing the other side of the tracks and totally transforming his politics into a, a, a fashionable and radical 
leftism. And, and here Fetterman, who was a progressive in good standing, actually repeatedly called himself a, a progressive, a proud progressive, now saying, you know what, I'm not a progressive, and then taking these stands that uh, really set him apart from the left, very strong support for Israel, and saying that there's a crisis at the border and we need to get a handle on it and we're letting in, you know, um, uh, the population of Pittsburgh every month or, or whatever it is, and this is crazy and it has to stop, and also being very forceful in his denunciations of Bob Menendez, the allegedly corrupt New Jersey Senator, have all set him apart, not necessarily from other Democrats. There are other Democrats who are pro-Israel. There are other Democrats who are like, yeah, let's do something about the border. A lot of Democrats have called Menendez to resign, but there's a verve to how Fetterman's done this. There's an in-your-face in, uh, aspect to it. There's a, you know, he'll walk through uh, pro-Hamas protesters and kind of rhetorically give him the back of, of his hand. You know, he's put posters up on his on his office wall. He said he's going to return a donation from Menendez's uh, pack of $5,000 stuffed in $100 bills and envelopes. So there's been this theatrical <laughs> element that's given it more resonance. But what's your take on what's going on here? I, I think John Fetterman wants to be senator for a long time. And uh, I think he has made a bold bet against the progressive left. Um, and I think it's a, a wise one. Uh, I think it, um, I think it's, uh, in states like Pennsylvania and Arizona, I think there's a huge upside to, to being seen as like an independent minded member of your party, um, and defying maybe the far reaches of it. Um, the way McCain did in Arizona, the way, um, you know, Chris, Kirsten Sinema does. Um, and, you know, when you look at the polls, 80% of Americans support Israel. Only 20%, a hugely influential, institutionally powerful, progressive, you know, educated whites are the ones, you know, chanting Hamas slogans or blocking traffic in New York. Um, MED, I, I, still, I still think you should write, write a book attacking... Highly educated I, white people. I should. Um, <laughs> I should. You know, in lieu of in lieu of a suicide vest, a book is the next best. <laughs> um, the uh, but uh, anyway, the um, he's making this bet, and it's, I think it's a good bet. And um, you know, he's he's also paired it with you know an interesting legislative agenda. You know, he joined JD Vance on the railway safety bill. Yeah, uh, trigger Dominic. <laughs> the big disaster in uh, in Ohio. I, whatever you want. The big, okay. big disaster. Dominic, Dominic, feel free to take that on uh, later too. Okay. But uh, well, uh, no. it's, good it's good politics for his state. And um, and the theatricality of it, you know, he's, he's bringing this kind of Gen X energy of, of sarcasm mm -hmm. um, into politics. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, a total winner. Uh, and actually his, there's a, a part of his personality that is att attractive, uh, even to me. So mm -hmm. good for him. So Dominic, the, the other, the other thing about this and what makes it potentially brilliant, if he can pull it off as, as uh, MBD theorizes, is that you're not really giving away anything ideologically on the core stuff, right? It's not as though he's moderating on abortion. It's not as though he's saying Medicare for all, what a disaster that would be for people, or the $15 minimum wage that would really hurt uh, uh, um, 
African American uh, workers who who will get squeezed out of the the job market. None of that. You know, the 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 agenda pretty much is still the the pure progressive agenda, but it's going to f- feel differently um, on him now, given that the, given these other things he staked out. Yeah, I don't think Fetterman is probably going to you know going to make big changes on some of these things as you said before he's taking positions that other democrats hold um it's not like he's uh you know to use mbd's mccain analogy it's not like he's putting himself in these positions or he's the only person in his party saying certain things um so uh he is just being very vocal about it like you said and trying to make it more performative which is which is a choice that he made it's probably has something to do with the fact that he might be realizing uh that he barely won probably the worst senate election in a long time <laughs> because his opponent was dr oz i don't know if uh <laughs> i think i think most republicans would prefer to just block that whole thing out of their memory but yeah. that's that's what happened it's there kind of weird to think on that isn't it that, that dr oz was a yeah candidate. yeah that was a thing that happened um so i i think He's probably realizing, like, man, this is a competitive state. Um, I just barely won this last time. If I want to stay here, I should probably act like this is a competitive state and probably, you know, not align myself with the craziest parts of my party, which is a good, you know, a good political uh, survival instinct from him. I think it's the sort of thing that more senators should do. Senators too often um, pretend uh, that they are you know, members of a parliament where it's really important for them to just line up behind their party leadership and vote as a block with everybody and so on. But a senator is supposed to represent first the interest of their state. Um, and they're also supposed to be more independent and they are supposed to, uh, you know, want to uh, debate these issues, uh, draw them out even within their own parties. Right. So I think the fact that Fetterman sees that as part of his job as a senator is probably is probably a good thing. Um, as for the railway safety, uh, the um, oh, here we go. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't characterize it as Fetterman teaming up with J.D. Vance. I would characterize it as J.D. Vance teaming up with Sherrod Brown, Maria Cantwell, and um, <clears throat> Joe Biden, and Chuck Schumer, and Pete Buttigieg, who all are the ones that are really uh, supporting and, and moving through. On, and, and wanting to bring a vote on the on the Railway Safety Act, and you know Mitch McConnell. Uh, and most of the Republican conference is really what's, what's standing in the way of that. So um, I don't really think it really shows any kind of bipartisan instinct from him. I think he's he's I mean he's just joining with every other every other Democrat in the Senate on that. Um, but uh, you know I, I think uh, I think like I said, look, Fetterman is um, is realizing that <laughs> the circumstances in which he became a senator are not likely to be repeated, and so he probably needs to do something a little bit different. From other Democrats, uh, is just in the way he messages things, the way he presents himself, um, in order to be politically viable in a very competitive swing state. So, Jim, there's a Quinnipiac poll, in Pennsylvania, a couple weeks ago, and it had Fetterman still under 50 percent, but his approval, overall approval, had ticked up a um, a couple notches. But it asked specifically about the border and Israel. You know, does that his stances, they make you think more favorably or less favorably? And both, it was overwhelmingly more favorably. 
especially on the border. Now, the downside of what Fetterman is doing, he did have a lot of you know excited young activists working for him and, and going out there and pounding the pavement for him in the race against Dr. Oz. And that, you know, he, he, he'd have more appeal to the center, um, given, given the new version of himself. But th- that sort of energy and um, volunteer help is probably going to go away. So, Rich, over following this conversation, three thoughts come to mind. First of all, has anyone heard from uh, Mrs. Fetterman lately? No, uh, yeah. Not. We have not. Mm-hmm. And during the time period where he was incapacitated from a stroke and effectively unable to communicate, Mrs. Fetterman went out, uh, Giselle, I believe is her name, and basically sounded like a very liberal, very progressive activist. And I, there's no reason to think that, you know, Fetterman was saying, honey, don't say that. But like this was a, uh, she helped shape mm-hmm. an image of Fetterman that perhaps was further to the left than Fetterman himself would have projected there. That's an interesting point, Jim. All right. Second thing, um, I just want to point out during the campaign, Dr. Oz says that he was a strong and true and loyal friend of Israel, and he hasn't said jack squat since October 7th. So I think that the Oz statement that he's a loyal, true friend of Israel was a bunch of horse pucky, not the word I wanted to use. And I think it's not surprising that people were less than enthusiastic about him as a Republican. All right. That's another interesting point. You made two interesting points so far in this answer. Oh, can, I got all kinds of trifecta. You can make a third interesting point. Sure, that uh, that Quinnipiac poll indicated that Fetterman's drop amongst Democrats was like two or three points. It was mm-hmm. a, the the online left would have you believe that the progressives in Pennsylvania are up in arms and outraged about the shift that Fetterman is taking. It judging by these poll numbers, the vast majority of Democrats either haven't noticed, are supportive of his position, or I suspect that the average Pennsylvania Democrat, particularly once you get outside of Philadelphia and maybe the Philadelphia suburbs, they're too pro-Israel and Hamas. Mm-hmm. They too are not particularly big, fond fans of uh, Senator Menendez. And they too would like to see the border secure. They may not go along with every particular Republican proposal. And to point out that Fetterman himself says he's not on board with HR2 or whatever it is that House Republicans want to propose. But he says that it's not xenophobic to be concerned about the border and that like we have to stop this number of people coming in month after month. It's a part of it, too. Making um, fun of New Jersey is a time-honored Pennsylvania tradition, and it's a big <laughs> part of the way big, that Fetterman won the it's Senate a election part of, because he yeah. kept saying Dr. Oz is actually from New Jersey. So Yeah, I, I just want to point out, by the way, like when, when like you're right that most Senate Democrats, more than half the Senate Democratic Caucus has issued a statement saying, these allegations are deeply concerning, and I think that Senator Menendez should resign. And then they stop. And then they, you know, they put out the press release. Menendez says, you're never getting me out of here. You're going to drag me out in handcuffs and or, you know, uh, uh, scraping my fingernails against the floor, the floor as they drag me out of here. Um, and every other Senate Democrat's like, oh, well, nothing we can do about it. And Fetterman brings it up. Fetterman's like, hey, why is this guy still getting classified security briefings when he was on the take for Egypt? You know, like, does it, like it's not just that he brings it up and he likes to beat this drum. And again, nobody's going to give Fetterman any grief for being too hard on, on uh, Menendez. Um, it also is a kind of like, there's this, I, I think he enjoys it. I think he like, he enjoys like, you know, rib, you know, sticking in mm-hmm. the ribs, uh, of Menendez. So there's a, you know, like, Hey, nobody's going to give you any grief for, for fighting, you know, mm-hmm. a, a most, the most corrupt SOB in the Senate. Yeah. But the, but, but again, you know, you're, so you're, you're not doing something that different from what every other Democrat has done, but it's memorable and it's going to create an impression, which is, uh, which is the intensity the, of it, the frequency yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah, so the people, oh, there, there's a guy who's in, independent, you know, and, and goes goes his own way. So MBD exit question is double barrel it. John Fetterman, to borrow your words, will indeed 
be a senator for a very long time in Pennsylvania, and other Democrats will notice the potential advantages of the Fetterman approach and adopt it as well. Um, <laughs> I think he'll get reelected because um, uh, I I can't see Republican Party getting out of the the branding issues that are are hurting it in states like Pennsylvania in time. Um, will he be there for a long time? I worry about his health still, you know, like, I mean, mm-hmm. he's a younger man to have a stroke like that. Um, and if other Democrats want to, in, 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 you know, uh, pivot, maybe they could have strokes too, and then change their brands mm-hmm. after they recover. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I could see him ha- winning one, at least one more turn. Um, but if he's such a superstar, you know, who knows what will happen? I mean, maybe he'll be drafted to run for president. <laughs> and, and other Democrats, will they, the, the party, I think, get the idea that th- this is, this is, you know, a, a way to uh, a, a minimize some of their cultural vulnerabilities? It just depends on the state they're in. I think Pennsylvania is a special case. Um, I don't, you know, unless you're, you'd have to be in a super safe seat with like, you know, kind of the, the bazooka fundraising apparatus, um, that you can get and build in California, or you have to be in a vulnerable seat like Pennsylvania to kind of have, um, your own brand. But if you're just like a normal Massachusetts Mm -hmm. Democrat or, you know, Illinois Democrat, I think it's really hard to, um, you know, change from the general thermostatic temperature of the party. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the pressures are what they are. I mean, it, and that's, that's democracy. <laughs> yeah. So you, you've written this, but on the border in particular, that the Biden administration has gotten itself into this place where it can't acknowledge it's a, it's a crisis and needs, needs Republicans to kind of force it to, to stop creating this crisis that is going to undermine Joe Biden's chances hugely in a general election against Donald Trump is, is one of the uh, ch- chief instances of either political malpractice or ideological insanity or, or perhaps both we, we've seen in a, a very long time. Dominic, so F- Fetterman will succeed and, and be senator for a while in Pennsylvania and will Democrats, other Democrats pick up a, a, a similar approach? Um, I think that's a really hard question, but I'm going to say probably not, um, only because 2028 is really far away. And I feel like a lot of different things could happen between now and then in terms of what, uh, Pennsylvania Republicans might be able to put together. Um, I think, uh, a lot of this stuff goes to show actually, you know, it, there's, there's a sense in which this is a turning point for Fetterman, but there's a sense in which it's consistent and that Fetterman is not who he seems like he is um, because he already has this aspect of his character with, um, uh, you know, his presentation as some like working class guy, but he's actually from a wealthy family and he went to an Ivy League school and all the rest of this stuff. He dresses in sweatshirts because he's spoiled, not because he's, you know, some avatar of the common mm-hmm. man, right? So... I think uh, this sort of goes to show with it too, where it's like, okay, so they voted for this guy. He campaigned as this big progressive guy, and now he's not that anymore. It's like, you know, what is it? So I, I feel like that stuff has potential to rub voters the wrong way, even if 
mm -hmm. I, even if they might uh, agree with it um, on, a, on a policy level, right? So I, I think there's um, I think there's some real uh, you know real vulnerabilities and weaknesses in him and as as a candidate going forward. And if he's running against someone who's not Dr. Oz, I think he's uh, I think he probably uh, has a much higher chance of being defeated. So. Um, I think it's, I think it's, you know, sort of 50, 50, but uh, you know, if I had to pick one over the other, I'm going to say he's, he's, he'll, he, he won't be uh, reelected. I guess I would say uh, as far as other Democrats copying this, um, I think, uh, I think it's possible that a couple of smart ones will. And I, I think uh, one of the frustrating things about watching the Senate the last couple of years has been that you basically have Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Sinema are the only ones that act like, they're the deciding vote on things that Democrats want to do. But in a very narrow majority like the Democrats have, every Democrat is the deciding vote. So they can all uh, they can all go out uh, go their own way on this kind of stuff. And like I said earlier, senators are supposed to be more independent and are supposed to be more focused on their, their state. So I, I hope more senators uh, sort of um, start to do uh, start to start to think about the job of being a senator uh, in that way. Jim. Um, I actually feel like we do have a sense of what Pennsylvania is going to be over the next couple of years. It's, it's, it's a bit of swing state, uh, maybe tinging a little more blue than purple. I, I don't see that changing dramatically over the last, over the next four years. I, I, I suppose something could happen, but this is, you know, it's been a swing state for a while. It's probably going to be a swing state for a while. And Fetterman will be running with the advantage of incumbency. So you figure his odds are probably never worse than 50, 50, uh, presuming his health holds up and he will be able to communicate in future election cycles and things like that. Um, so I think he's, he's a better than average, better than 50, 50 chances of winning reelection from here on out. And as for Democrats adopting some of his tactics and positions and stuff like that, Rich, my answer is only in election years. will democratic. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Dominic makes a good point on the kind of the falsity thing, which could be used against him. And they, they make an argument. He's always been pro Israel and that, that, that seems plausible. I haven't researched it closely, but the idea that he, he was never a progressive, which he now maintains, is completely ridiculous. I mean, it's it's on the record all over the place. But I think it probably worked for him. Um, and will other Democrats adopt this uh, approach? No, most of them won't, but they uh, uh, they should. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, our friends at Moink. 60% of U.S. pork production comes from one company owned by the Chinese, and their hogs are given something called ractopamine, which is banned in 160 countries, including China, yet you find it in your grocery aisle every day. There's a better way, so let's talk about Moink. That's moo plus oink. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should because the family farm does it better. The Moink difference is a difference you can taste, and you can feel good knowing you're helping family farms stay financially independent, too. You choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes, to chicken breasts, to pork chops, to salmon fillets, and much, much more. Plus, you can cancel any time. We literally, literally, at the Lowry household, had a delivery of Moink uh, come yesterday afternoon. It's an event. I mean, the boxes, the, the way it's packed is uh, extraordinary. We had um, fresh salmon in there, uh, beef tips, which my wife uh, loves to, to use in uh, stroganoffs, 
pork, uh, beef burgers and pork burgers, and also as an added bonus, cinnamon rolls. It's really extraordinary stuff, and all of us here are fans of Moink. We are not just saying it because we're privileged to have Moink as a sponsor. It, it really is extraordinary stuff. Shark, Shark Tank host Kevin O'Leary called Moink's bacon the best bacon he's ever tasted, and Ring Doorbell founder Jamie Simomoff jumped at the chance to invest in Moink. Plus, they guarantee you'll say, oink, oink, I'm just so happy I got Moinked. Roy's happy when we get Moinked at the Lowry household, and you will too. So keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash editors right now. And listeners of this show get two free steaks in your first box. It's the best steak you'll ever taste. But for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash editors. That's moinkbox.com slash editors. Please check it out. So, Dominic, I guess at around 1.30 in the morning or so the, the other day, uh, Donald Trump was very carefully considering the issue of presidential immunity. L- reading up on the Supreme Court decisions that touch on this has never been uh, decided the question of criminal immunity for a former president and issued forth with quite the extraordinary all caps, and not just, you know, a portion of it all caps. This this baby was all caps, all caps, saying, among other things, that even events that, quote, cross the line must fall under total immunity, quote, a president of the United States must have full immunity without which it would be impossible for him slash her to properly function. What do you make of it? Well, I mean, as... Bill Klein said uh, before, if 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 Trump is saying it's impossible for him to be president without breaking the law, then he shouldn't be the president. Uh, that's that's just that's that's crazy. Um, I I think uh, you know there there are genuine confusing questions about what presidents you know presidential powers. I mean this is this is an area that has been has been litigated and argued in the Supreme Court, and that it is confusing. But um, it's not confusing that. The, the president can't commit crimes on purpose. <laughs> that's that's just that's crazy, uh, and, and and never face any any accountability for it. Um, I, I don't know. And to the extent that presidents have engaged in criminal behavior in the past, that was that was bad too. So I don't know what the point of that is supposed to be, aside from the fact that he's currently in court over this stuff. Um, there's a sense in which it makes it makes sense that look he's he wants to he wants to have these these arguments. It probably doesn't help him in his court cases that he's spouting off on this at one thirty in the morning uh, for the entire world to see. That's uh, probably not uh, very beneficial for him from a, a legal perspective. I'm sure if he had competent legal counsel, they'd tell him not to do that. But uh, I just or maybe they are telling him not to do that. He just doesn't listen. Um, it's, it's, a, it's always a problem with the client rather than the, yeah. uh, the lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the lawyers haven't been so great either for him. So uh, it's it's just kind of a toss up. But uh, it it really does. Um, it, like I said, it, it's it's it, it should be disqualifying for president. Uh, it's it's pretty straightforward in, in my view uh, in that regard. And um, I don't think. Trump would approve of uh, Joe Biden making the exact same argument. Joe Biden is currently the president. Is Joe Biden uh, immune from any criminal trial for anything that he wants to do to say, I don't know, sabotage Donald Trump's campaign or something? Because Trump 
is more than happy to talk about ways he thinks the Biden administration is abusing government to sabotage his campaign. But if he if he sincerely thinks that that is occurring, it seems weird to also say that, oh, yeah, he could totally do that. It's totally within his power to do that. And he can never be charged for it, even after he's done being president. Uh, that that just seems that seems crazy. Seems crazy on his own terms. And it it is crazy. So, Jim, I'm not going to defend this this all caps post. It was obviously uh, ill considered when when everyone's trying to make you out as a, a dictator. This is not the uh, <laughs> this is not the argument you should be putting front and center. But it's th- what what he's trying to to get get at. And here here I go. So it's like being right back when when Trump was was uh, president uh, again. Yeah, you can sort of see what he's getting at. And I, I do see kind of what he's getting at here. The, the, the Supreme Court has not addressed this question of, of, of criminal immunity. So it's not, I don't think it's like a 100% slam dunk. I haven't studied it carefully. I'm, I'm doubtful that a, a president would have um, criminal, a former president would have criminal immunity. But the Supreme Court has taken up this question of, of civil liability. And one of the arguments they did make is like a president's going to do controversial things and do things that, you know, they didn't use the language cross the line. But, you know, th- things things that uh, are going to strike people as, as deeply wrong. And you can't have them sitting there in the Oval Office like wondering, all right, th- th- I think I need to do this to carry out my my duty. But am I going to end up, you know, under civil litigation for 10, 10 years when I'm former president? Maybe I, I shouldn't do it. So that aspect of the Trump argument, I kind of get. But uh, I, I wouldn't do it this way. And I wouldn't do it all caps at 1.30 a.m. Well, I mean, there's civil liability and then there's criminal liability and the idea of, well, the president should not be sued after leaving office for the actions he took as president is one thing to say the president is immune from all crimes committed if he can claim that they're part of his presidential duties. Well, now you're into the territory of, well, the president does it. It is not illegal, as uh, Nixon had famously said. But I just want to jump out and just observe, you know, everyone said, oh, my God, I can't believe Trump said this. Like, the, the example he chose to select of how we have to accept this is police brutality. He said, even events that cross the line must fall under total immunity or it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. There must be certainty. Example, you can't stop police from doing the job of strong and effective crime prevention because you want to guard against the occasional, quote, rogue cop, unquote, or bad apple, unquote, like Trump is saying. You know, hey, we we have to live with rogue cops and bad apples. Sometimes you just have to live with great but slightly imperfect. By the way, great but slightly imperfect is not how I would characterize Trump's behavior from Election Day 2020 until January. Also not how I characterize police Um, brutality. (laughs) Yeah, like this is this, you know, this this blithe hand waving away of things that are crimes uh, is not how things have worked in this country. And it is a, you know, even if you want to argue the president is granted, I think the president is granted really broad, you know, discretion and powers and exercising the powers of the executive branch. It doesn't mean you get to, you know, violate any law willy-nilly. And that, you know, Trump hates hearing the word no. He hates hearing it from lawyers. He hates hearing it from judges. He hates hearing it from Congress. He hates hearing it from his advisors. You know, he wants to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And that is fundamentally at odds with a system of checks and balances. So, no, Rich, I can't see the reasonable point that is somewhere buried <laughs> in there. So, MBD, I, I was looking at one of the the briefs from Trump's legal team, and, and Andy wrote a, a great column a, about this. But one of the arguments they make for the idea that there's a sweeping criminal immunity for former presidents, they quote the 
impeachment clause uh, to the effect, quote, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office, ellipses, but the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. So what they're trying to argue is that you have to be impeached and convicted, then you're vulnerable to criminal indictment to a former president. And clearly what this means is like any former president is going to be uh, liable to criminal indictment. And that applies to you if you're impeached and convicted. There's no double jeopardy if fr- from uh, between impeachment and a criminal indictment. So, so th- this, this, this is a terrible argument. There might be better, better arguments for, for the idea that he has immunity. But, you know, I think the norm, and this is something else Andy has written and talked a lot about, you know, you don't want the president, like no president has said like what Trump just just said. And you wouldn't want that to be the rule, right? Because you encourage a president to, to quote, cross the line, right? Because now you're talking about crossing the line, which most presidents, no president's ever said before, I'm going to have to cross the line. <laughs> so that's that's very bad. But also there was this, this norm against prosecuting Former presidents, that was also very important, right? We honor Gerald Ford because he's like, no, we're not going to go after Nixon. Not as consequential, but there was real potential of, of going after Bill Clinton uh, after he left office on on the various perjury, um, uh, uh, potential perjury charges in the Monica Lewinsky case. And 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 the answer was, no, we're, we're not going to do that. He, he went through an, an impeachment. He wasn't convicted, but he paid a political price. And we've kind of litigated it politically. So we're not going to do that. And also, you know, Eric Holder, of all people, kind of stood down on the, the torture charges against um, George W. Bush. And that probably would be like the closest uh, thing we're, we're talking about here. If we put the Trump stuff aside, there are people who think George Bush violated the law in like a heinous way as as president and it was argued about and um, you know the law the the practice was was changed and laws were passed so to go after him for that criminally after he's left office I think would be just profoundly wrong so I think what Trump is doing where he's pushing us is wrong but I also think going after him uh, on this January stiff uh, six six stuff criminally is is a huge huge mistake and a violation of uh, norms on the other side. Well, I mean, is it a violation of those norms? Because, you know, what are the norms? So, I mean, I look at this and I think there's a pretty clear rule for presidents, which is you can do anything as long as you don't offend the Washington Post and New York Times. If you really offend those guys, you got to resign like Nixon or you're going to face prosecution like Donald Trump. But if, you know, you drone an American citizen like Barack Obama, but, you know, that's cool. you put Eugene Debs in prison for your, the rest of your term uh, during the war. That's fine. Um, do torture. No problem. Um, it's uh, offending journalists is the, the, <laughs> the crime that uh, brings about death penalty for presidents. Donald Trump is now finding that out. Nixon found it out before him. Um, everything else goes as far as I can see. So uh, I have, I have no further comment. <laughs> so, 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 uh- uh, say in a nutshell what you think this election is is about. The way you put it to me the other day, the the way the way the establishment views it and the way Trump views it. Oh, so didn't you, your formulation? Isn't your formulation that uh, the establishment thinks about the question is whether the establishment will continue to rule, and that's what Trump and his supporters think as well. That yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I think this election has been denuded already, being denuded of all issue substance, and it's just a pure question of. Does the establishment rule or do the people get to interrupt and put a buffoon in uh, to interrupt that rule? And um, 
and like it's just a pure legitimacy crisis. Um, it, it would only be worse if it was someone other than Joe Biden, because um, then it would be like it would really be conservatives would feel like, hey, we're the legitimate Americans because we're loyal to our institutions and our constitution and our history and progressives, you know, we're the only legitimate power because we're the ones who recognize that America is built on slavery and white supremacy and um, is wicked all the way down and is the cause of, you know, genocide in Gaza, whatever. Um, and then it would be pure, you know, uh, religious war <laughs> uh, as, as an election. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just who gets to rule the New York times or, or the people of the United States and uh, the New York times will win. <laughs> so Jim, speaking of winning, and this is, a, this is a nebulous exit question, I admit. So it kind of depends which way you're, you're looking at it. So, so f- feel free to uh, take it whichever way you want. But at this juncture, you would say Donald Trump is winning the legal war with his enemies or his enemies are winning the legal war against Donald Trump? Uh, I would go the opposite. I think he's winning, I think he's losing the legal war. Uh, I think these, you know, the odds of one of these four criminal trials not going his way is pretty good. Uh, but I think he's winning or at least fighting to a tie in the political war um, because clearly being under, you know, indictment in all these cases – has not stopped him from being a competitive president, stopped, stopped him from a competitive presidential candidate against a dead against Joe Biden. And, you know, he's, you know, still the front runner. And as we discussed earlier in this podcast, are very likely to, you know, cruise to the nomination. So I think, you know, you see it in his outbursts in the courtroom. He's much more interested in the jury, the metaphorical jury outside the courtroom than he is about the juries inside the courtroom. Dominic. Yeah, I completely agree with Jim's assessment there. I think, I think he's losing the legal battle, but it's probably neck and neck in the political battle. And the only thing I would add is thank goodness for the independent judiciary. And Bidi? Um, he's, he's losing the legal battle and, um, and I, I seriously worry we're headed for some kind of constitutional crisis. Like uh, how do we decide what to do when the leading you know, when a candidate of one of the major parties is, is, um, you know, felon. <laughs> yeah. So uh, th- there's no doubt we could end up in, in that place as we, we've discussed many times before. I'm going to say, I wouldn't go so far as to say Trump is winning. I'm going to say he's making progress in, in the legal war. And obviously, you know, he's, he's going to get killed in the, the, uh, the civil fraud case. I mean, it's already, he's already guilty. <laughs> um, in the civil fraud case, this Gene Carroll thing is is not going to go. In New York, is not going to go well for him. But the big enchilada, I think, is that January sixth case, and the name of the game there is is delaying it. And I think he's, you know, it, th- with the Supreme Court. Another thing, I'm very reliant on Andy, who I talk to all the time. Um, th- this Supreme Court decision on obstruction, and you know h- how you correctly interpret the obstruction statute involving some of the January 6 defendants, you know, Chutkin's going to have to probably end up waiting for that, right? So it's in June somewhere, and she, is she going to start a trial in July or August? And she's already um, kind of said she's going to, you know, not, not make the early March uh, trial date for, for the start because uh, the, this, this immunity case we've just been talking about, immunity appeals, 
So is she, is she going to start? If she does have to delay into the summer, is she really going to start at the summer and it's going to go the, the entire course of the summer and into the fall? You know, a two or three month trial gets hard, you know, it gets really hard. So I think he may end up uh, delaying that one, which is the uh, which is the whole point. The classified documents one is just naturally going to get delayed. The brag one is joke. And Fannie Willis has a has a big problem now on on her on her hands. So winning you know, too strong, making progress. I think so. With that, let's hear from our final sponsor this episode, C-SPAN. January, as we've just been discussing, has brought the first test for 2024 contenders seeking the White House. C-SPAN is the place for political campaign enthusiasts with unfiltered coverage surrounding the early primaries and caucuses as well as speeches from the key battleground states. Whether you're interested in your state's race or want to follow all the political events, you can get immediate access to what the candidates are saying plus nominating results in real time with the free mobile app C-SPAN Now. That's C-SPAN Now or watch live on the C-SPAN networks. So with that, let's hit a few other things before we go. Dominic, you just watched the movie The Courier. Yes, it was. Uh, it's a good Cold War spy movie. Uh, it came out over COVID when like nobody was paying attention to movies. And so I think it kind of... Uh, went by unnoticed but it's actually quite good and it's the kind of movie that if you're the kind of person who says man why don't they make good movies like they used to about you know uh intrigue and spying in the cold war and uh you know that aren't trying to make some big political point but are just about uh you know it's based on true events and uh uh it's about a, a british businessman who was uh uh used by the British and American intelligence to uh, convey messages back and forth from uh, the Soviet Union and um, played a role in the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. So very interesting stuff and a really well done movie. Uh, the you know they get the the stuff with the, um, uh, the the time period right and it's it, it's very good um, in the, in that respect as well. So uh, yeah, I'd recommend it. I don't think it got much attention at the time. It's called The Courier. And uh, uh, it was a good movie. So, Jim, you were down in Georgia for a joint event, National Review Institute, Georgia Policy, Public Policy Center, or what, what the, what's the name of the Georgia Public Policy there? Institute, yes. Uh, they're a think tank down there in Georgia, and we're kind enough to host an event with the National Review Institute. Think of this as another subtle plug for National Review Plus. You should be a subscriber. A lot of listeners to this podcast are subscribers. And a lot of a decent number of listeners to this podcast are active in the NR Plus Facebook group. And now, between my trip to Georgia and my trip to Iowa, I have met three members of the very active members of the NR Plus Facebook group. They listen. Hi, everybody. Uh, all they're great folks, and glad to do so. And uh, and our National Review Institute is always organizing events with us, going around giving talks, doing seminars and forums and things like that. So. Check the National Review Institute website to see what's going on, our fellowships and all that. And uh, that's great. Glad to uh, go in and talk to folks and look forward to doing it again sometime. So, MBD, you've been listening to a special series on the Nazis from the podcast, The Rest is History. Yeah, I've recommended The Rest is History before. Um, it's hosted by two historians, one of them, Tom Holland, the author of Dominion, which is a really great uh, book on kind of the moral revolution, Christianity. Um, and... They're doing a series on the rise of the Nazis, which is, you know, of course, like gripping and very familiar material, but uh, in their hands, it's really um, incredibly well told and well thought out. 
um, and chilling. Uh, and uh, I recommend anyone to dive into it. I think the, they're only partway through, and and uh, the latest episode on the Kristallnacht was uh, absolutely, you know, devastating. And um, it's, it's very educational, and um, and it will hold your attention on a long car ride for sure. So I, um, I, I, I got to get a Starbucks before I get, get out on, get on a flight, especially if I'm going to, uh, write something, which I usually try to do when I'm, when I'm on flights. So I, I'm very obsessed with the efficiency of Starbucks outlets at, at airports. And it's not the main line you got to worry about and how long that is. You, you got to look at the, the people waiting to pick up the, the orders. And if it's really jumped up there, um, uh, really uh, bunched up there. And a lot of people are looking very uh, frustrated and as though they've been standing around a long time. Beware, beware. So I, I've abandoned orders at, at Starbucks. I, I generally cut my um, boarding of flights pretty pretty close. And I, I've had to deal with, not a, not a bad thing to be in, in South Florida, but the West Palm Beach Airport Concourse C Starbucks a couple times. I, I stood in line there a, a couple of weeks ago and I was getting near the front. I was, I was like, this is just never going to happen, you know, and, and I'm going to risk missing my, my flight. And I'm a little less adventurous and cutting it close than I used to be. So, so I just got out of line. And then I, I was there again, um, just, uh, what was it what, last weekend? And I, um, the, the, the line, the line looked pretty bad and it, it just, you know, I had this bad experience before. So, so I did, did the mobile app, you know, my mobile, I hadn't used my mobile Starbucks mobile app in, in a while. My understanding was they, they did mobile orders first. They do mobile orders first. So I did the mobile order also almost had to abandon this mobile, mobile order. So I'm sure the good people there at the concourse see uh, Starbucks, but, but beware, <laughs> beware if you're, if you're going through. Um, Palm Beach, which some of us will soon. There's a National Review Institute event, speaking of, of NRI events, coming up there in a couple of weeks. So before we go, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? My pick is Henry Olson's piece, This Should Be Republicans' Red Line in Any Immigration Deal, uh, where he's talking about uh, enforcing entry and not giving out work permits, which... Um, are basically the two biggest sins uh, in the Biden administration's uh, neglect of the border and our law uh, laws distinguishing between citizens and non-citizens. So that they're they're allowing people in and they're increasingly agitating to give them permission to work, which is only going to cr- increase the flow um, and worsen the crisis. So Henry's right on. Dominic. Uh, my pick is Noah Rothman's piece called Davos is Cringe. Uh, ah, that was about, my pick. What was that? That was my pick. Oh, wow. About the uh, World Economic Forum, which has become very fashionable for conservatives to be upset about recently. Uh, but um, Noah makes a point. If you're going to be upset about it, you should be upset about it because these people are idiots, not because they are evil masterminds, because they're really not evil masterminds and they really are idiots. <laughs> Jim, I'm going to go with uh, Michael's Joe, the advantages of old age for Joe Biden. It's an unexpected headline, but I'd say a tr- uh, trenchant analysis. Um, and it may seem a little contradictory. Today's morning jolt is entitled Biden faces a dark and cloudy forecast in the Southeast. This is uh, I was talking about, you know, being down in Georgia, 
Biden campaign thinks they're going to win Georgia. Biden campaign thinks they're going to compete in North Carolina. And I'm skeptical on both fronts. But I think we ought to recognize that Joe Biden, like for, for the fact that he's incoherent and he's 81 years old and, and all the week, and he doesn't do press conferences anymore, doesn't do sit down interviews, all these things he should be doing terribly. And yet he's still in the ballpark against Trump. And it's very conceivable that uh, he could still win this. So I think we should, you know, even those of us who are rooting against the guy should be like, all right, so what's working here? Why is Biden managing to survive a really terrible issue environment and all these lousy numbers? And yeah, some of it's the weakness of Trump, but also I think Michael puts his finger on it that um, his oldness in a strange way is reassuring to people uh, that he, you know, the Democratic Party's base might be crazy left, but Biden is just never going to come across as a guy who is that, even if we find him to be uh, not willing to stand up to that hard left as often. Anyway, everybody should go read what Michael writes. So my my pick, my backup pick, thanks, Dominic, is the editorial we have run on how just ridiculous and disgraceful this South African Rich, that was my backup. Oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> We're totally, totally on the same page. What was your third choice if it, if it came to that? I didn't, I didn't go down that far. I figured, I figured there was only going to be a chance of, uh, of needing one backup. And, and you're, and you're correct as, as usual, Dominic. So except you're, you're right about pretty much everything except for the pitch clock, which is going to get uh, tightened up uh, again this year, which is a good, is a good thing. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a national review podcast and rebroadcast retransmission or count this game without the express written permission. Of National Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Schutte, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Bound by Oath, Moink, and C-SPAN. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.